the pandemic changed how we see and use data in analytics. Local and timely data have been important in knowing how and where the virus is spreading. But is our data up to the job? What sources can we add to our data system to make them better? And how are new data sources being integrated with our traditional ones? Rupin Sioni joins us to talk about how the pandemic has demonstrated the power of timely data to guide real-world decision-making, and what governments can do to improve Canada's data infrastructure. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is someone who often graces our TV screens during elections. We rely on his riding-by-riding analysis to show us how the country is taking shape. As lockdowns and stay-at-home orders have made us move less and less in our day-to-day lives, his kind of analysis has become surprisingly relevant. From helping Main Streets recover to tracking outbreaks, decision-makers need information on where people are, where they go, and who they interact with. Rupin Sioni, Chief Revenue Officer, Environics Analytics, has lived through an explosion of data over his career. Today, he's helping communities, organizations, and businesses use that information to make better decisions. Rupin, welcome to Bright Future. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Businesses and, in fact, entire industries have changed over the past 15 months. How has the pandemic changed the data and analytics industry? The pandemic has really necessitated more timely and location-specific data and analytics. The pandemic has spurred a lot of innovation in the industry. For Canadians more generally, it's forced us to take a hard look at what data we've been using in the past, its shortcomings, and it's pushed us to look to other data sources that can help fulfill those needs. For some industries that were shut down or experienced significant slowdown, we saw more focus and investment in analytics. They really had to accelerate their path to using digital channels and become more data-driven. I can think of a comment by one of our clients that was in the tourism sector that despite all the layoffs, they tended to keep their analytics people on staff because they knew they would need them to come out of this. 20 years ago, that wouldn't have probably happened that way. You've been able to analyze new sources of data to create almost a real-time map of how the pandemic and how lockdowns have been changing movement and consumption patterns. How has this data helped you to see the pandemic's impact on main streets across Canada? We've been working with mobile movement data from smartphones for actually a few years now. The pandemic made it really clear that these data sources will be a critical tool to understand the rapidly changing patterns of behavior to help manage the public health response and to help businesses adapt and governments provide the right supports during this time. We really set out to do a few things to make this data better. We wanted to improve it, make it more insightful and easier to use as a decision-making tool. Improving it because we wanted to normalize and weight it so that it's not just a big data field of people's movements. We wanted to make sure that it was more representative of the entire population and, of course, anonymized and aggregated so it's privacy compliant. It's really important to think about the Canadian context here. A lot of these data sources have been adopted in the U.S. and other larger countries, but here in Canada, we ended up having to combine multiple data sources because of the density of our population made it really difficult to rely just on one supplier of this kind of data to get 
large enough samples to actually have something meaningful that you can work with reliably. We had to Canadianize the approach by combining multiple sources to really make it better. In terms of making it more insightful, it was really important to be able to make sure that the data connect to other data. It's not just movement data in isolation. It's actually data that connects to things like demographics and expenditures and attitudes and behaviors and media use so that you can actually link to more about the populations that you're trying to understand and how to communicate with them. And then finally, I mentioned easier, embedding data and software takes a lot of work, but it makes it a lot easier to use so that you can literally go in and select parameters around the exact local area of interest and the specific timeframes and be able to pull reports on it. That's one of the key things as we start using big data sources. Now, you mentioned main streets. The data have helped measure pre-pandemic trends and patterns, of course. During the pandemic, having data from as recently as three days ago, given all of the rapid changes and shutdowns and patterns, really helps us understand how to respond in a very volatile environment. I live off the Greek town Danforth Strip here in Toronto. Our area here has seen a sharp drop in visits. It's always been a citywide entertainment and eating destination, and people are staying home, so they're not coming as much. Now, our data show that our strip here has transformed into more of a local shopping and takeout food strip for people living immediately around the area. But the businesses would really need to take into account that the population is a little older, it's a little less family-oriented than patrons were pre-pandemic, and is a little more affluent. And the occupational profile of the people patronizing Danforth suggests that a lot of them are probably working from home. Maybe there's a bit of a lunch crowd now that didn't used to be there to the same degree that those businesses could really take advantage of. It's really about using that localized information to help adapt offerings to what the situation is currently. The pattern that we see here isn't necessarily what you're going to see everywhere. It really does depend on the local context. There are some main streets through our work with the Canadian Urban Institute that have actually seen increased visits. It's really important to know what's going on specifically in your area and not just try to extrapolate from citywide or regional data. And that goes back to some of the changes in the data environment that we've seen as a result of the pandemic local matters. What we've done is by linking the movement data, so you can take visitors to, I'll use my Danforth example again, to that Danforth strip, we're able to get a projection of how many people visited and what their neighborhoods were. And then when we start layering in our prism segmentation, which is basically a typology of Canadians, so there's 67 lifestyle types based on the characteristics of a postal code demographics, social values, the built environment, all of those things help us create a typology. It helps us understand the kinds of people that are visiting an area like the Greek Town Strip at any point during the pandemic and compare that to who was there before. It starts to paint that picture and makes the data more powerful by condensing all of that data that we have into a simplified lifestyle code, if you will, which is what PRISM essentially is. What do you think this information will be able to tell us about how the recovery will look like for our communities? 
that's always a little hard to predict because, you know, looking backwards helps us predict the future if everything is held equal, which, of course, it never actually is. The lag period is so short with some of this data that it allows us to narrow down to relevant time periods to pick up quickly emerging trends and be able to act on them more quickly and more locally so that governments and businesses can respond faster and make better decisions compared to when they were making decisions on no data or old data. And I think the opportunity that it also provides is that test and learn approach, because if you get data quickly, you're able to action it more quickly, make adjustments, see what the response is, and continue to offer better services and more appropriate government supports for populations, which really makes us all better off. We've all recently completed our census, and we know that there's been a varied history with the cancellation and the restart. You know, it is a critical component of Canada's data infrastructure, but it's only done every five years. It's very different from what you're talking about with this three-day-old data that you're using to help inform decisions. Do you think the pace of our national data collection is calibrated right for the data-driven future that we seem headed toward? The census is an absolutely critical piece of our data infrastructure, and I hope everybody who's listening filled out their census form. Having comprehensive measures and attributes on the population is what allows us to normalize and make more reliable the surveys and passive data sources that actually we're using more and more because big data, all the social media feeds and the mobile movement data and all the other data sources that are out there have inherent biases in them. And data like the census is what allows us to make that data more usable and more reliable and consistent. What the pandemic has shown us is that the national data infrastructure needs to be more rapidly available and place-specific. I mean, we needed that data pre-pandemic as well because it could enable better decision-making, but the pandemic has really shown us our shortcomings in so many ways. It's not realistic that we're going to do a census more frequently than every five years. I mean, a lot of countries only do it every 10 years, so we're pretty lucky here in Canada. But there are data gaps, for example, about special populations and in certain areas like healthcare. We need to support the investment in a national data strategy with more standardization, better flow across departments and jurisdictions. We Canadians are great at our jurisdictional squabbles. There has been some progress forced by the pandemic these past couple of years. It's also identified a lot of where the work lies. StatsCan, for example, has produced a lot of data using new methods and improving timeliness. They've showed leadership. I would really like to see the government recognize and support that leadership. Where do you think the government should focus their attention? Well, they can continue to explore the integration of other sources of data to get it faster and have better measurement. They've actually been doing this for a while. I mean, StatsCan has had a modernization mandate for a few years now, and they've been exploring a number of avenues. Do you remember the controversy around? Stats can wanting to test the use of banking transactions to model Canadians' expenditure patterns for the consumer price index. The process of obtaining that data maybe needed to be handled a bit differently, but they were asking exactly the right kinds of questions. They were asking, what other ways could we collect this data? 
how accurate would the approach be? And how would the results jibe with what has been done in the past? The other thing I would say is that there's always been a lot of red tape if government wants to engage with outside organizations. Finding solutions to allow for easier exploration of some innovative solutions could really help in this area. And the record really is spotty. I mean, the government has tried, but procurement hurdles really do hit smaller, innovative, often homegrown organizations that the government may want to partner with in some of these initiatives, because those organizations just don't have the bandwidth to jump through all the government procurement hoops. You know, a key challenge to overcome is that we need to ensure that there are ways for data to flow from provinces and territories into StatsCan for areas where the provinces are responsible. We'd like to see a lot more focus on building, let's call it a national data spine for the benefit of all Canadians. The data and analytics discussion, and you talked about this with the example of the banking information, often includes concerns around privacy. This concern can really render tools and the data itself far less effective than intended. And we saw that through the pandemic with our contact tracing tools, which got the sign of approval from privacy advocates. But in the end, it seems that privacy protections actually reduced its efficiency. What's your perspective on whether privacy and data can be harmoniously balanced to allow data to live up to its potential? Of course, these things can live together. Frankly, I think we live these principles at Embryonics Analytics every single day because the data we provide are extremely useful to all sorts of organizations. We work with hundreds of organizations by giving them greater specificity and integrating different sources of data for a more complete view of Canadians, but inherently protecting privacy in all of our methods. So it's possible. I think the pandemic has shown us the value of data like mobile movement information. Pre-pandemic, some organizations, and I would particularly say governments, were quite reluctant to use some of this data because of the perception of tracking individual citizens. The pandemic's data needs forced us to take a more nuanced look at what this data is and how to properly assess the real privacy concerns against the public benefit from better data in a critical time. And clearly, the data have been immensely useful in supporting policy decisions. We are having a more nuanced discussion as the gaps have shown through dealing with the pandemic. The space is changing rapidly. I mean, there's new companies emerging and, you know, acquisitions and alliances announced literally daily. Government organizations are also forming partnerships with private companies and nonprofits in the space because they realize that they need a broader set of tools in their toolkit. They also have data that can feed the sector, which also is a generator of innovation in the country. Companies can take government data and use them. Partnering is really happening everywhere, and it's not just in Canada, but it's actually even more pronounced here because we have a small market and the laws are quite different here around privacy and data than they are in the US, for example. It really requires a made in Canada or adapted to Canada solutions to the analytical applications that are commonly used elsewhere. And what this means is we require modified methods and, you know, often lots of cooperation with one another, since pieces of a solution might be held with different organizations and that they need to work together to do that. 
The other piece is that making data and analytics faster to get at and customizable by users so it's relevant to their specific needs would be the other thing that is changing in the analytics infrastructure. And that's happening everywhere around the world. Generalized data isn't as useful as it used to be. We need to adapt to having more specific, better information because that's what our complex world requires. You talked about how that data is being used and the importance of stripping out bias. It is one of those concerns that you hear about is that the data can sometimes be used to reinforce biases. How are you applying an inclusion or an equity lens to the data that you are working on? And how do you approach this issue within your analytics? First of all, I believe that to understand and correct biases and inequality, I mean, you can't change if you don't measure. And that has not always been the dominant thinking, but I'm glad you know we've evolved on this issue in Canada. We are engaged in the data and statistics community, including with StatsCan and with our many customers and are looking for new and innovative sources of data to help bring more understanding of different populations. So the efforts to reduce inequality are supported. We've adopted an approach to the issue of how to measure special populations, including Black and Indigenous populations, but you know, really all diverse populations. There's a saying, nothing about us without us. Consultation on diversity and inclusion has to start with meaningful dialogue with groups who have been discriminated against and disadvantaged. Society has the opportunity in this time period to really make meaningful change, but we have to create discussion circles that lead to real understanding. And as data professionals, I think we have to ensure that what we measure and how we measure and how the data are used are actually serving those populations. I guess there's sort of two aspects to it. One is what you decide to measure. And that goes back to that nothing about us without us. There's context and interpretation. And to get the measures right, the groups that you are actually trying to measure need to have an understanding of what those measures are going to be and support them. That's one key piece. And a lot of public sector organizations have a lot of experience in how to consult and how to try to identify what those right measures are, not to say that we've got that perfectly, which brings up the second point, which is we also have to figure out how to bridge all of that to a measurement framework that is actionable and practical and withstands updated information and can track progress over time, because it's hard to measure everything in all circumstances. So how do we bridge those challenges? One of the challenges that we faced at the conference board is we have all of this geographically based data, but Canada itself and where we live seems to be a barrier. We have such a large geography, we're spread out across the country. When we get into a question of presenting data on a national, provincial, or even census metropolitan area basis, the risk is that it obscures some of the nuances and local insights. Well, it's an age-old problem. Canada is notoriously difficult to put on a map if you're trying to show anything about its population other than the fact that its population is highly concentrated in a few areas. In my over 25 years of working in analytics in this country, what I have learned is that thinking about the country as a whole is really just a starting point that obscures the real story, as you say. If you see a Canada-wide statistic, so often if you simply look at Quebec versus the rest of Canada on that statistic, you see 
dramatically different preferences and behaviors and demographics. And the same thing happens when you pick your duality, urban and rural, north and south, young and old. So you have to break our enormous country down to understand the important patterns that drive a national statistic that you're looking at. So your presentation of the data actually gives more insight. The local matters a lot. It's really the foundation of what we do, making the story actionable and local. One of our great partners is Esri. They're a, a big supplier of geographic information system software. They coined the phrase, everything happened somewhere back in the 1990s. And it's really relevant today, and we live by it. Where do you think the better use of data in analytics in Canada will have the most impact in this post-pandemic economy? Well, I mean, there's so many. I'll focus on two. Given that healthcare costs take up so much of government spending, having the public sector better tooled with data and analytics to make better decisions would be the first. I mean, hopefully we can turn how the health sector has embraced looking at many data sources during the pandemic to entrenching different sources and methods post-pandemic. So it's getting over that hesitancy, that reluctance to do things a little bit differently within the public sector. There's also a great case to be made for government in partnership with industry associations to make data and analytics more accessible to hard-hit independent businesses. These organizations have, you know, frankly, they have little capability to access data and conduct analytics on their customers and their market areas, but they have an urgent need to adapt and to survive this new normal that's going to emerge. Big companies have been adopting tools and analytical skills for years, and they can afford them. The space that governments and associations can really help level the playing field for smaller organizations if we don't want to just see them all disappear is to provide them with skills and tools that they can use over the longer term to be more competitive. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports in audio editing. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.